As we finish chapter 14 from the book of Acts, we'll see what happens when the truth of Christ is revealed. Some embrace it and some hate it. Here's Pastor David. What's, what's more important to you? I want you to think about this. Is it more important to you to be liked by other people or at least not disliked by other people? Or is it more important to you that other people get the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Is it more important to you to be liked or at least not disliked? Or is it more important to you that other people get the knowledge of Jesus Christ? And, and whatever you've just answered in your mind right now, whatever that answer is, ask yourself if your life bears out that that's what you want more. Ask yourself if your life bears out that that's what you want more. I want you to, to think through that question, kind of let it sink in as we go through our passage today and as we work through um, the part of Acts that we're in. I want you to think about, do I care more about myself being liked or at least not being disliked or fitting in or not rocking the boat or not causing a ruckus or do I care more that people come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ? And what does that look like? So we're in Acts 14. Been in Acts 14 for a few weeks. Um, and we're going to finish Acts 14 today, Lord willing. Um, if you remember last time, Paul and Barnabas were in a place called Lystra. And once again, uh, they caused trouble and talked about Jesus. And people didn't like that. And people were coming from the cities they were in before. And they came down there and they threw rocks at Paul until they thought he was dead. And then the disciples came around and assumedly prayed for Paul. He got up and went back into the city that day. And then they went to a place called Derby. So we left them sort of on their way to Derby, uh, Paul and Barnabas, in the last section. So we're going to pick up there. If you have your Bible, we're in chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 21. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, verse 21, it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples... Let me stop there for a second. So this is what happens in Derby. When they go to Derby, they preach the gospel and they make many disciples, right? The Great Commission, right? Making disciples for Jesus Christ, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. So we see that that happened. They went to Derby and it was successful. The rest of that verse says, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Um, if you've been here, for the last few sermons, you should be thinking to yourself right now, they went back? They went back? I just told you that in Lystra, the people got so upset and sideways that they tried to kill Paul, okay? In Iconium, where they were before Lystra, uh, the, a violent attempt was made by the Gentiles and the Jews because they stirred up these rulers and so on, the prominent men, the prominent women, and so on, and they made a violent attempt against them, so they fled to Lystra in the first place, in Iconium. And in Antioch, they were expelled from the city. They were expelled from the region, right? The Jews stirred up these people. They got them upset. They were upset about them preaching Christ, and they literally kicked these guys out of Antioch. So after he goes and it gets worse and worse, they get kicked out. Then they're good. They have, there's violent attempts made on them. Then they go to Lystra and there's actual violence, really serious violence committed against them. They go to Derby and they think to themselves, let's go back. 
Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We have a map. I want to show you something. So these are the missionary journeys of Paul here, okay? Um, and they are in Derby. if you can find that on the map. And if you can find Antioch in Syria, which is going to be the beginning point and the ending point, you see that blue line that comes back. The red line is we follow them all the way out, and the red line ended in Derby. Now we're watching that blue line come back. If you look at Derby, there's a faster way to get back to Antioch. There's a faster way to get back to Antioch. There's actually this really neat tool um, that Stanford actually put out. It's called Orbis, the Stanford Geospatial Network Model of the Roman World, if you want to look at it. But it's actually really cool. You can go on there. There's a map, and you can click a couple different places, and you can ask it to tell you what the fastest route is, what the shortest route is, and what, or what the cheapest route is from one place to another. So I just checked out Iconium to Antioch there in Syria, and both the fastest and the shortest route were to head east, not to go back this other way, okay? And even if it was the worst route to go east, why would you go back? Why would you go back to places where you knew there was persecution and very possibly death? Why would they do that? So uh, let's find out. Let's look at verses 14, 22, and 23. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they went back to strengthen all these people in these cities who had come to Christ. Remember, as they'd gone into each city, there were people who were angry, but there were people who came to Christ. And so they, went, they couldn't just leave them. They couldn't just leave them. They had to go back. So they went back, and they strengthened them. If you want to strengthen someone's faith, one good way to do that is to show that you've got a lot of it. And if you're going to walk back into a place where you've got a good shot of being killed, you're showing a lot of faith. Maybe more something like stupidity at some point, but you're definitely showing you believe that whatever the cost, Christ has called you to do that. No doubt this was incredibly strengthening to the faith of these young believers who had just come to know Jesus. So just in going back by itself, they do that. Of course, they also teach these folks, right? Um, and then they say, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We're actually going to come back to that section of the verse later. Uh, the, so they return to strengthen the disciples. And they returned to appoint elders. They returned to appoint elders. This is the model for the church. It was the model in, in Jerusalem. It was the model in the synagogue. It was the model for the church that, we, that the church was, was set up and overseen by this group of pastor elders. Okay, so when Paul saw a lot of believers get saved, he organized them and set elders to oversee the work of the church. He did this in all these cities, and we'll see consistently in Acts, when people come to know Jesus, he sets up elders. That's the way we do it here at Acts Church. We have elders. Why do we do that? Because this is the way that it was set up. This is the way that the Holy Spirit, uh, through Paul, was setting up the church at the beginning. Right? We already know there were elders and so on in Jerusalem. Now as he goes and all these Gentile churches get saved, he sets up elders. Right? Elders are the ones who are responsible for serving the people for loving the people, for caring for the people, for seeing that the people come to know Jesus, for seeing that they're discipled, for seeing that they are continuing to grow in their relationship with Christ. That's what the elders here do. That's what the elders there did. They wanted these churches to start off right. 
They didn't want to just give people the news of Jesus Christ and then leave them without anything to help them grow. So they went back to teach, to encourage, to set elders up, and to set up these churches to be successful. Let's read uh, 24 through 26. It says, And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So, if we look at that map, you can see the rest of where they went. We don't hear a lot about what happened on this part, but after they go back to these places where people have gotten saved and they set up these churches, they basically follow the route very similar back to Antioch where they started. Remember, this is the church where they began, and this completed this missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, right? They started in Antioch. The church had sent them out, and now they've gone out. They've done this stuff, and they've made it all the way back. You guys have gone through Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey here. And so let's look at the last couple of verses in this passage. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, this is the church at Antioch, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. They reported back to this church. Remember, the Holy Spirit had sent them out through this body, through this church, on this missionary journey. And it's very interesting here that they say, the door of faith was open. That God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Jesus talks about being the door. The door to salvation. Right? This is one of those I am statements in John where he says, I am the door. Let's look at John 10, 7 through 16. Jesus says this. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is important. Listen. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them, I must, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. What is Paul saying here? The door was open to the Gentiles. This is, this is what's going on. Jesus has gone. Remember, at the time that Jesus is talking, it's the Jewish folks. This is the flock, right? But he says, I have another flock. Talking about the Gentiles, the rest of the people. The wall of separation between the two is going to come down, and there's going to be one shepherd and one flock in Jesus Christ, which is a phenomenal thing to happen. Of course, in Antioch, they already knew the Gentiles were coming to the Lord, but now he's gone into these very Greek lands, you know, up in up in Turkey in that area, and all these people are coming to salvation through Jesus Christ. And he's mentioning here, he's 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 taking us back to the words of Christ, saying, look, I'm the door. I'm the door, and you're my sheep, and I have other sheep, and then we're going to all be in one flock together, and I'm going to be the shepherd. So Paul is telling us that. Now, with the end of this chapter that we've just gotten to, we're actually halfway through the book of Acts. So yeah, 
right? I mean, we are just mm, moving. The elders of the church decided many, many months ago, as you know, that we should study the book of Acts. I don't know if they realized how long it would take, but they, they decided that. We decided that we, as a church, needed to know what it looks like to be the church. We, as a church, needed to see what the church is supposed to be. And so we've talked about the factual, historical side of Acts, how accurate it is. We've talked about the descriptive versus the prescriptive, the things that, that the Scripture tells us happened but aren't necessarily for us to do, and yet then there's other things that the Scripture tells us that happened that are prescriptive for us, that we ought to do. We've talked about all of that kind of stuff. Right, we're learning what it looks like to be Christ's church. And what have we seen? What does the church do? A couple things. Okay, let's just kind of do a recap since we're halfway through. The church, we set up elders. That's how the church operates. They worship and meet together weekly, corporately. The church corporately meets together weekly on the Lord's Day, right? All together to worship and daily from house to house. We see this in Acts 2. This is the way that the church operates. They get together weekly. As, as, a, as a group, as a congregation, corporately to worship together, and then daily from house to house, right? We've learned that salvation, that the church is actually made up not just of Jewish people, but that the door of salvation was open to all tribes, all tongues, all nations. We know that the church is generous, that they take care of one another. We learned that in Acts 2. In Acts 4, we saw the collection that they did for the relief of the Judean people after the famine, that the church is regularly generous, that people give as they can to the church, to the people, that we take care of one another, that these are, these are sort of uh, signals of what the church is and what it does. We know that the Holy Spirit, when the church was doing what it ought to do, the Holy Spirit was active in growing the church both in numbers and in maturity, that that's what the church looked like. Now there's another part. How have we seen the world react to the church? How have we seen people who are not coming to Christ, who do not come to Christ, how do we see them, or at least haven't yet, how do we see them reacting to the church? Well, we see when Paul goes into a city, we've seen it consistently, we'll continue to see it, when, when Paul or Barnabas or Silas or these different guys who go out there and they preach the word of God, we see two reactions. Some are drawn to Jesus Christ, and people are saved and baptized and discipled and become disciples for Jesus Christ. And some are repelled. Both Jews and Gentiles get mad, get angry. What we see for sure is that people react to the authentic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They react consistently. That's one of the things the church causes. The church causes reaction. Who here loves onions? Anybody love onions? Yeah, I don't know. Probably, like I'd say 30, 40% of people love onions. Who hates onions? Anybody? Yeah, probably about the same. Uh, you know, several, several people hate onions, right? Uh, some of us like onions. Some of us hate onions. Some of us react uh, just to the odor of onions. It's like, uh-uh, mm, no, that is not food, right? Some people are like that. That's not me. I, li I love onions. Love me some onions, okay? Uh, onion rings, red onion, yellow onion, walla walla sweet onions. Come on, that's good stuff, right? Amen. Okay, so look, it's like the gospel, Okay, not necessarily like onions. People are worried if I don't like onions, I don't like the gospel. And he's saying, I'm bad. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying 
It's like it, okay? It's like that, the reaction that people have. Some people say, mmm, that onion smells good. And some people say, that's nasty. It makes me have a reaction against it. That is what happens when the gospel enters someplace. When the gospel breaks in, reactions, both positive, drawn, and negative, repelled. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 2. Verses 14 through 16, it says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For those of you essential oil people, you have those little diffusers, right? Come on, don't act like you don't have essential oils in your house. I know that you do. Uh, I've seen them. I've smelled them. But you have the diffuser, right? You put the little essential oil in there and then it goes out and no one ever gets sick again or whatever they're supposed to do for you, right? It diffuses the odor, right? It diffuses the odor. He's saying, look, through us, through us diffuses the fragrance of his, Christ's knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of of death, leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life, leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. To those who are being saved, the church, when the authentic gospel is being proclaimed and knowledge of Jesus Christ is being radically proclaimed to those who are being saved, We're the aroma of life. And to those who are perishing, the aroma of death. Why did they want to get Paul the heck out of their cities? Kill him? Get rid of him? Why did they want to? Because he's the aroma of death. Because Christ was diffusing his aroma. The aroma of the knowledge of Christ was being diffused through the work of the church. And some people were drawn to it and loved it. And some people wanted to get rid of it and or kill it. Here's the thing. If we want to be the aroma of life, we have to diffuse the true knowledge of Christ. Okay? But if we do that, we're also going to be the aroma of death to some people. If we do it, and we do it right, we're going to be the aroma of life to those being drawn to Christ but the aroma of death to those who are perishing. If we act like hypocrites or lukewarm Christians or something like that, that's not the knowledge of Christ, and that's not the aroma probably one way or the other. That's just nothing. If Acts is going to tell us what the church should look like, what our lives should look like, The first thing that we have to see is we cannot go halfway. We cannot go halfway. Paul and Barnabas get the reaction that we expect from what we've seen in the book of Acts. Some smell death, they want to kill them. Some smell life and the knowledge of Christ, and they're drawn, and they become saved, they become disciples of Christ, and they move on into relationship with him. Right? There's no lukewarmness in their message. There's nothing lukewarm about their message. It's done in love. It's with a desire for peace and love and joy, but there's nothing lukewarm about it. 
Okay? Let's get back to that thing that I said we get back to that they said to the churches. They said this, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Following Christ is going to produce tribulation. That's what he's saying. What do we see consistently in Acts? When the Holy Spirit is at work, it causes a ruckus. It causes a ruckus. In fact, Paul himself was one of these guys who before Christ revealed himself to Paul and he became a follower of Christ, he was the one causing the biggest ruckus. It caused a ruckus. He couldn't stand it. He wanted to destroy it. The way he talks about it, he was obsessed with getting rid of the church, and there were many like that, right? The reaction of people to the authentic message of the gospel is either very positive or very visceral and even sometimes violent, right? Get out of our town. Or the sound you hear instead of their voices is the rocks whizzing by your ear, as Paul found out. Why? Why? What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God? What is he talking about? And why does it cause this reaction? We don't talk about the United States. We don't talk about this country as a kingdom. Right? We don't have a king, or we ought not to in any case. We don't have a king here. So we don't, maybe this language isn't something that we're as familiar with, but these people definitely knew what a kingdom was. They had an emperor, right? They had a guy who was basically all-powerful who they had to submit their lives to, or they would forfeit their lives. That's what they lived in. They knew what a kingdom was, right? The king is in charge. The king rules with power and authority over the lives of those in the kingdom. Now, of course, they were familiar with a human king, a human emperor who was not necessarily a good person. Right, we're at this point that we're at in Scripture. It's Claudius who is emperor. A little prior to that, there's a guy named Caligula. You want to find a real good king? Read about him. Not a great guy, right? Um, but we're being asked to enter the kingdom of God, which is to say to submit ourselves to the power and the authority and the majesty and the rule of Jesus Christ. That's what we're being asked to do to truly serve the real king of the only real and lasting kingdom. But in order to do that, it's through many tribulations that we get there. I think in two ways. One, many tribulations to ourselves as we have to die to our desire for self-rule and many tribulations from others as we become that aroma that to some is life and to some is death. Paul's preaching this message that the kingdom of God is at hand and you better get on the right side of that. And people, some say absolutely. Some say I desire that. And some people hate it. So how about you? What's your reaction to the gospel? We hope it's the right one that leads to life. And if you still have questions about all this, we'd love to help. Call us at 360-885-9000 or send us an email. Use info at axchurchnw.org or even better, come see us at Axe Church this Sunday morning. All the info you need is at axchurchnw.org. Well, that's it for today. And I hope you'll be right here next time for more with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.